0: How we doing this morning? We good? All right. All right, we're going to start, and I have a question. This question I want you to really think about. It might take you some time to ponder or figure out if this, how to answer this, but I want you to really think. I, I, don't want, you, I want you to really like, just dive deep into this question and answer truthfully, okay? You sound good? Okay, very hard question to answer. Is there anyone in here who's never made a mistake? There's always one. There's always one. Me. And it usually has a spouse like, stop it, we're in church. It's it's funny because the church is full of people who make mistakes. Amen? The church is full of people who have failed and messed up. But it's interesting because there's sometimes this persona around the church or this thought around the church. And I used to think this, that the church is just full of a bunch of perfect people. That they, 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 They've got their life together. They don't make mistakes anymore. And I mean, have you ever heard this like uh, uh, when you're inviting someone to church maybe? I can't go to church with you. If I went, the building would catch on fire. <laughs> or how about this? If I went, the, the walls would crumble in right? Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, I used to say that because I thought there was like some special thing that had to happen to where for me to go into church, I had to have my life at a certain place of perfection so I could get my membership card to show to everyone that my life was perfect. That's my view of the church. I know there's probably some of us in this room who walked in here today, or maybe you're online, you're thinking this, you walked in here and you said, you know what, like I can't go in there because I make mistakes. Well, here, I want to tell you something. If they let me in, you're good. Okay, if they let me in here, you're fine. The truth is, is the church is full of broken people. Amen? Which leads us to our topic today. How do I trust, which is the series in how to trust, how to trust forgiveness? Forgiveness. How, how, how do I trust or how do I trust the forgiveness that is spoken about in church? How do I trust that I personally am forgiven? One of the things I think happens a lot in our world today as we'll come to places like this, and we'll hear talks on forgiveness, we'll hear about Jesus, and our mind will say, well, it's great for that person, it's great for that person, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what mistakes I've made. My mistakes are too far above the bar of forgiveness. How do I trust that the forgiveness I've stepped into in my relationship with Jesus is enough? Well, to answer the question on forgiveness... First, I want to talk about why we need forgiveness. Why is it important that forgiveness is offered to us? Why do I need it? First one is this. Why do I need forgiveness? Because from the very beginning, when, when men fell, when humanity fell, uh, and sin entered the world, there was a separation between God and humanity, Sin caused the separation between God and his perfect heaven and us as imperfect, sinful people. Why do I need forgiveness? Because there's a separation. And where God is, where, 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 where in heaven, it's 100% perfect. And so it doesn't matter where I fall on the sin chart. An ounce of imperfection, cannot be amongst perfection. Amen? It's just, that's the truth. There's a separation between perfection and the brokenness of the world. The second thing is this. The wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Based on this sin that causes the separation, the wages, the price of that sin is death. From the moment sin entered the world, Death and decay came with it. It's just, they're, they're, they're linked. Where sin is, you, death and decay are linked to it. The third one is this, because God is just. Why do I need forgiveness? Separation, heaven's perfect, the wages of sin is death, and because God is a just God. Be- because he is just, if the wages of sin is death, That means that there's a price along with that. That there there had to be a price. If wages, what what the the wages of sin leads to death, for us to not have death, there had to be a price. There had to be an exchange. There had to be a, a, a payment made for that. Because God is just. There's no, I hate to say this, there's no sneaking into heaven I know sometimes we wish, you know, like, I think some of us, we view it as like, I'm just going to get in the line when it's time, and I'm just going to hope that the person in front of me causes a scene so I can just sneak on through, you know, and I'm not going to go for the big mansion. I'm going to take the little house, play it under the radar, you know, because God is just and the standard of heaven is perfection, there had to be a payment made. You can't just sneak in. You can't be good enough. You can't be almost there. You can't have less mistakes than them, right? And because God is just, uh, there had to be that payment. So there's there's three main reasons why forgiveness is a huge issue. And I want to just talk real quick about God being just. There is two ways God will deal with every person. There's two ways that God will deal with every person who has walked the earth, ever walked the earth, or will walk the earth, Two ways are this. One, he will reconcile them to himself. They, they will step into his grace and forgiveness and they'll be reconciled to him and their ways will change. Second, they will stand before him in judgment. Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. You will either be reconciled to him, your life and your ways will change as a, as a fruit of that, or you will stand in front of this just God in judgment, and see that it, it's interesting when you read scripture. This idea of forgiveness is a theme that is woven through all of scripture. And when we read Old Testament scripture, and Old Testament is the beginning of the Bible, uh, the earlier books in scripture, uh, when you read those, you will see that there was an atonement process when it came to forgiveness. There was a sacrificial system put in place that that would they, they, the people of God would perform these sacrifices. To, to be forgiven and to be made right in the eyes of God. And there was there was five different kinds of sacrifices made in the Old Testament. First one was this. It was a burnt offering. This was an offering of assent. This was an atonement of sin and, and and a showing of devotion. A burnt offering was is an offering that says in the name. It was an offering that was burnt in the presence and for God to atone for one's sin and and to worship him, to express devotion. There was a grain offering. This was another devotion offering. This was a voluntary devotion offering. This was just out of my, my desire to, to worship God. I will offer this grain offering. I will give of this grain to God. The third one was a peace offering, also known as a thanksgiving offering. This offering could have been cattle, sheep, or goats. This was just an offering of thanks to God. That when there was something in your life to be thankful for, you would make this offering to God. And the fourth one was a sin offering. This offering was for an atonement of an unintentional sin. Anybody ever made a mistake or sinned and didn't mean to? Just me? I mean, I was thank you. Thank you for being with me, guys. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, I have a problem. Um, I, a lot of times, I'll do, I'll, I will get doing things in life, and I'll be going, I'll be making decisions, making decisions, and I'll get to a point in life where I'll say, I am not doing well right now. I think I've fallen into sin. It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't like I purposely rebelled against God. It was just that my, in my day-to-day, I drifted into sin. That's what the sin offering was. This was removing, this offering, the Old Testament, the sin offering was removing the consequences of sin over your life. When you sinned, you would go with this offering, you'd bring it to God, and it was removing the consequences of the lack of perfection. The last one is a guilt offering. Once again, tied to sin, but a guilt offering was admitting one's guilt. It was coming to him and saying, I am guilty. I am offering you this, acknowledging my guilt. This is like reparations for the sin in my life. I'm coming to you and I'm saying, God, I have failed. And maybe even on purpose. I rebelled. And I am coming to you as a guilty person asking for your forgiveness. And so this was the Old Testament structure. This is the, the, the structure that was put in place between God and humanity to atone for this sin problem from the very beginning. This is how humanity did it. But then in the book of Jeremiah, we hear of something that is foreshadowing what we call today the new covenant. Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says this, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This new covenant, we refer to it as the New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament can also be referred to as Old Covenant, New Covenant. What this new covenant is saying is that this new covenant will be within humanity. It'll be in us. This covenant made between God and us will be in us. It'll be tattooed on our heart. This new covenant. And then after Jeremiah, we get into the New Testament. We hear of how this new covenant comes to pass. Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth. Leaves perfection, comes to earth. And he comes to earth in the form of an infant. And he lives perfect. Perfect. Not your standard of perfect, but like real perfect, you know, because you raised your hand when he said you didn't make mistakes. Real perfect. Lived this perfect life for 33 years. And then he is taken to pay the punishment for us. He gives himself up and he's taken to the authorities and he's beaten and he's mocked. And he, he's, he's spit upon and a crown of thorns on his head and then he pays the ultimate price by going to the cross and shedding his blood. Because the wages of sin is What? death so there had to be a price paid christ goes to the cross and he pays that price says this in one peter 318 christ suffered for our sins once for all time he never sinned but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to god He died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but was raised to life in the spirit. I love this line here, that Christ suffered for our sins. The wages of sin is what? Death. So Christ goes and he gives his life, sheds his blood to pay that price, for you and for me. That's the gospel story. And it says here in this scripture that it was the ones and for all sacrifice. This in, the sacrifice of Jesus is this eternal sacrifice. So the structure of the sacrificial system to atone and to be right with God is taken away. That structure is gone and Christ takes that place. He takes that place and he becomes this eternal one-time payment with the shedding of his blood. Man, what what amazing truth this is. That Christ did this for us. Took our place. What amazing grace this is. Because I don't know about you, but I mess up all the time. I make mistakes all the time. I let people down all the time. And people let me down all the time. It's the world we live in. And the fact that Christ Jesus chose to leave heaven and come to earth to do this for us is mind-blowing. Because not only do we not deserve it, right? It's like sometimes we think about this sacrifice that Jesus gives for humanity here. It's something like, we didn't deserve it, but we're good people. We didn't deserve it, but we're not that bad. No, it's not that we just didn't deserve it. We were incomplete and still are often in rebellion against God. And he still chose to come and give himself for us. This is amazing grace. This is the grace of Jesus that doesn't look at us and say, you are not worthy of my sacrifice so I won't go to the cross, but looks at us and says, you are not worthy of it, but I love you so much, I'm going for you. This grace of Jesus is so mind-blowing. It's the gospel in a nutshell that this amazing grace of the Savior did not abandon us and leave us when we deserve to be left, but chose to come to the mess in the muck and take our place. It's Amazing Grace. There's a song written, many of you know, Amazing Grace. You know the lyrics of this song? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me I once was lost But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's the song, this amazing grace. And I love the lyrics of the song because it says, amazing grace that saved a what? Wretch. Wretch like me. It's not amazing grace that saved a decent human being like me. It's not amazing grace that saved a good person like me. It's amazing grace that saved deprived, broken, sinful me that didn't deserve it. I once was lost, but now I see. I mean, sometimes in life we can feel this. That when we are away from Jesus and we are distant from him, we are lost and wandering in a world where we can't see correctly. And we step into the light and revelation of Christ. And then we can see. It's interesting for me, this song was written by a man named John Newton. John Newton wrote this song actually as a sermon. He wrote it as a sermon and he posted it at his church. He wrote this song. And the interesting thing about John Newton is that oftentimes we think of people who write amazing songs like this. We're like, they are great Christians. John Newton was a slave master and trader. That was his profession until he got radically saved by Jesus. So when he writes this song and he says, a wretch like me, he is truly understanding the depth and magnitude of what Christ did. The only thing that can take someone as wretched as someone like that and make them into a new creation is Jesus Christ. And it's that grace that we live in. And usually I would wait to do this till the end of the message, but I'm just going to do it now. The truth is, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And if you're in this place right now, and you know that, and you're lost, and you're wandering, and you know you need forgiveness, I want you to just have a moment with God. So what we're going to do is everyone's going to close your eyes. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or stand up or anything. I'm just having you close your eyes so you can stop looking at people and looking at me and you can have a conversation with God. If you're in this place this morning and you know you need a savior, you know that you you have sinned and you've fallen short and you've made mistakes and you wanna step into this forgiveness that is offered through the sacrifice of Jesus. If that's you right now, I just want you in your heart, you don't have to say it out loud. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I have sinned. I confess that I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. Be the savior of my life. I commit my life to you. I love you. Forgive me. Forgive me. Amen. Amen. You can open your eyes. Can we just make some noise? I guarantee you someone just prayed that. So the grace and forgiveness of Jesus is amazing. But let's answer the question how do I trust his grace is enough? How do I trust that the grace of Jesus is enough to cover my sins? How do I know? It says this in 1 John 1, 9. But if, you, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. How do I trust that my, His grace and His forgiveness is enough? Because He is faithful and just. That's the truth. How do I trust that my sins are forgiven? Here's the perfect thing about it because I don't have anything to do with it. Because if it was up to me, I'd mess it up. How do I trust my sins are forgiven? Because He is faithful and He is just. That's how I trust. He's faithful and he's just, and he cleanses us. He cleanses us. Now when it comes to forgiveness, I wanna just remind you of something. Spiritual forgiveness and forgiveness from God does not stop earthly consequences. Sometimes I wish it did. But we can reconcile and we can be made right with Jesus. And He can cleanse us, but we will sometimes pay earthly consequences. For example, my friends in the Nevada Department of Corrections are going to watch this on Tuesday. You've made mistakes, and you're paying those consequences. But I want you to hear me say that you, as a follower of Jesus, are not defined by the mistakes you've made, but are defined by Jesus. The shedding of his blood was sufficient enough for me and it's sufficient enough for you. And you don't have to live in shame and regret as you pay for those earthly consequences because you will spend eternity with him in heaven forever. Amen. So now I trust that I'm forgiven. Now what? If I trust that I'm forgiven and I believe it, how should I live? What do I do when I'm forgiven? How should my life look? Well, let's put it this way. When I'm forgiven, I must forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 says this. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If I'm forgiven, I must forgive others. And once we have a deeper understanding of the depths I had to be forgiven of, once we have a deeper understanding of what Christ had to do to save a wretch like me, my view of humanity changes. My my forgiveness meter changes because I have been forgiven much without doing very much. And just like I am called to do, I am not called to forgive people once they have done much for me, but I am called to forgive people even if they reject me. I'm called to forgive people even if they mock me. I'm called to forgive people even if they turn on me because that's what Christ did for me. I'm called to forgive others. And once we understand how much we have been forgiven of, it changes everything. When I'm forgiven, I must forgive others. And when I'm forgiven, I can live as a new creation. When I'm, forgiveness, I'm forgiven and I've stepped into relationship with Jesus, I can live as a new creation. Second Corinthians 5, 17 says this. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. I can live as a new creation. Anybody who has become a follower of Christ, the old life is what? Gone. And the new life has what? Begun. You are not a better version of the old you. You are not an improved version of the you before Jesus. You are not a better person and just a little bit different because you met Jesus. When you meet Jesus, the old you dies. And it is gone forever. You are not just a little bit better. You are a new creation. You are completely new. It's, it, I love this. Because it's not like we are a new creation, but this part of me is still there. When you read scripture, you understand this. When we stand before God, he won't even see this. Because when God says something is gone, it's gone. It's not a part of you. And a lot of us, we live life like we're still tethered to the old us. We're still tied in wanting and desiring or or feeling things of the old us. You have to remember you are a new creation. The only one that is holding on to the past is you. God doesn't see that you anymore. Which leads me to my last point. When I know I'm forgiven, shame can't win. When I know I'm forgiven, shame can't win. Isaiah 43, 25 says this. I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and they will never think of them again shame cannot win if I am a new creation and I am forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and I am promised eternity through the resurrection on the third day shame cannot win in my life because shame is not from God shame is from the devil shame is from the enemy And when I allow shame to creep into my life and to remind me of the things I've done and remind me of the mistakes I've made and I look back at the problems and the failures of the past, I'm allowing shame to win. We have to remember that that's not me. That's not me anymore. And when I look at it that way, it will win in my life. And there's a cycle of shame. Because here's how most of us do this. We make a mistake. We fail. We come to Christ. We ask for forgiveness. But we're filled with shame over our mistake. And shame usually leads to more sin. And more sin usually leads to more shame. And it's a cycle that goes and goes and goes until we really start to trust that God's sacrifice of his son was enough and his blood was enough that I don't have to feel shame for things I've repented for because it has been blotted out of history it's gone i think of a story in scripture and a town was being destroyed and they were destroying this town and God was destroying this town and there was a few that were chosen to leave they were saved they weren't held to the same punishment of those in the city. And as the city's being destroyed, they, they're, they're given very strict instructions. It's very easy. You just leave the city and continue to go. The only thing I don't want you to do is don't look back. Don't look back. I want you just to look forward. I want you to leave this city. I want you to leave the city behind. And as they're leaving... And they're going, Lot's, Lot's the man's name and he, he's moving out with his family and then scripture paints this picture of Lot's wife has this moment where she pauses. She pauses and she turns and she looks back at the city and at that moment, she's turned into a pillar of salt, frozen, frozen in her looking back. How many of us are like that? Christ has called us out of shame. He's called us out of sin. He's saying, just keep coming to me. Keep making your way to me. And often we are good for a while, but we have moments where we pause and we feel guilty and we look back and we say, I can't believe that was me. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I made those mistakes. I'm such a bad person. And we become stuck, just like Lot's wife, stuck in shame and regret when Christ is calling us to move forward. Shame in your life is one of the biggest tools the enemy will use against you to stop you from moving forward. And in fact, shame will keep you in the darkness when you are called to live in the light. As a follower of Christ, you are called to live in his light. But often we will just fall back into the darkness of shame. and It will keep us there. I just want to warn any parents with young kids in here in just a moment about to turn off the lights so you can warn them so they don't freak out. So let's do that now. Turn the lights off. This is what shame does. Shame is a dark prison that when we are living a life of shame and not fully understanding the weight of our forgiveness, we live in this darkness and we believe a lot of lies. And here's the interesting thing about shame. Look even in this dark room, you can't see the world clearly. You can't even see yourself clearly. This is what shame does. It changes your worldview. It changes how God sees you. And I mean, it doesn't change how God sees you. It changes how you see yourself and you start to believe the lies of the enemy, that this is who you are. You are called to live in light. You are forgiven by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. He's called you to light and he's called you not to live in this dark place any longer. What is the thing that you're looking in, looking back to that's keeping you in this dark place that you need to really believe that Christ's blood was enough to cover today? You are called to live in the light and be a, be a light bringer. Don't let shame keep you locked in this place any longer. Because of his amazing grace, I no longer live in the darkness of sin and shame. I live in the light of Jesus Christ forever. Amen? Amen.